This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. Our guest today is Laura Deandra Tyson, who is Professor of Business Administration and Economics and Director of the Institute for Business and Social impact at the Haas School of Business. She is a former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors in the Clinton administration. Uh, Laura served as dean of, of the Haas School and of the London Business School. Professor Tyson is the 2015 Harvest Distinguished Lecturer. This is a series which features women from a broad range of disciplines and cultures. It offers a forum to foster thoughtful dialogue and an opportunity to be inspired by outstanding and accomplished real-world women leaders. Laura, welcome back to our program. Thank you, Harry. What, what attracted you to economics? <laughs> you know, I discovered economics. I was pretty good at math at high school. I went to college thinking I'd do math, which is pretty rare for uh, a girl at the time. And I went to a woman's college, uh, took a class in economics, and instantly realized that's what I wanted to do because I wanted to do something that was rigorous, where I could use at analysis and, and, and math, but that addressed uh, policy problems. Because I actually had always been interested in, in, in those as well, even in high school. So it was a wonderful combination. And, and looking back, what, what factors in your life influenced uh, your commitment to progressive values, which is, I think, a fair assessment of where you fall on the spectrum? Yes, and, and I'm not entirely sure I can... Um, linked, trace it. I mean, part of it, I suppose, is that uh, my parents uh, were raised poor in uh, Jersey City in Bayonne. My father was, uh, his life was very much shaped by the GI Bill. Uh, so they're rising into the middle class. He's the first person in his family, extended Italian family, to go to college. Um, emphasis on education from the very beginning. I suspect the, the nuns in Catholic school may have a little to do with my progressive values, uh, taking care of the disadvantaged and uh, paying attention to equity concerns uh, and the concerns of others, clearly, I think, was something you got in, in Catholic school. Um, and then I gradually, as I went to college, began to study history and study political science and realized that the values that I had were what... I guess we call now progressive values. Maybe we call them liberal values. I don't know. Uh, and has it been difficult to reconcile the discipline, you know, essentially what the numbers say, mm -hmm. if I can make a short version of economics, <laughs> and where the values lead? I mean, in other words, or is that really about defining the problems you want to look at? So my colleague in, uh, at the Council of Economic Advisors, who is also a classmate of mine uh, at MIT, Alan Blinder, wrote a very good book about 25 years ago, maybe 30 years ago, and is actually in the process of revising it. It's called Hard Heads, Soft Hearts. And basically, he says, economists have hard heads. They want to figure out the best way to do something, the most efficient way to do something, the least costly way to do something. But they can certainly have soft hearts. That is, uh, what's the best way to provide uh, 
early childhood education for disadvantaged families? What's the best way to provide employment opportunities for high school dropouts? So you can be committed to the, to the values and then say, what's the best way? So I think there's a natural combination. And, and the interface must be important because it, the, the economics must bring rigor to where your heart wants to go. So I think that's the, that's the hard head concept. The, the, these things are not uh, doing these things is very difficult. Some ways are more effective than others. Some ways don't work at all. Some things that sound good, it turns out when you actually look at the evidence, don't really work. So y- you have to say, I'm, I'm committed to my values. I'm committed to my goal. I want to do this. Let me look analytically about the best ways to achieve this. And I think that's, that, that's what the rig of the discipline uh, forces you to do. Now, what about the leap from economics to public policy? Because mm-hmm. the, there's an interface there yes. that's challenging. Yes. Talk, talk, <laughs> yes. A, talk a little about uh, yes. the adaption that has to take place, <laughs> if, if that's the right word. You know, Berkeley was very important to me in terms of my preparation for uh, a role in public policy. Uh, with some of my colleagues at the time, we got interested in U.S. economic competitiveness and trade. We started something that you know about called the Berkeley Roundtable on the International Economy. We started to deal with policymakers and business leaders trying to make give advice about how to make the U.S. more competitive, how to raise productivity, how what a, a trade agreement should look like. So gradually, slowly, over a decade, I would say, I started to have those kinds of interactions. Um, by the t- I was not uh, like many of my colleagues in the Clinton administration who had spent most of their life in politics aiming to be a policy maker at the highest level. I had really spent my life in academic circles, but in advisory capacities, on commissions, things like that, writing commission reports. So it was really a surprise uh, and a, a, a great stroke of, of, of luck, really, that I ended up in the position that I ended up in. I mean, my work was known. It was known to the, the president-elect, Bill Clinton. He knew about my academic work. Um, but I still was thrown into an environment where I didn't quite uh, know all the rules. Um, I said then, and I think it's true, that uh, being an economist, but being an economist who could explain things clearly to large groups of, to 900 sophomores and freshmen at Berkeley. <laughs> if I could explain economics to them, I should be able to explain it to the public, to policymakers, to members of Congress. So I was viewed as someone who could be very articulate and helpful in both designing um, policy, but in also explaining it, in, 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 in making people understand why this was the right thing to do. Came from my academic, uh, my life at Berkeley, I must say. At this point, I like to ask uh, my guests about what they see as the skills and temperament involved in the discipline. So in your case, uh, uh, what do you see as important in, in that regard with regard to economics but also public policy? So for economics, I would say I clearly um, have uh, – I guess I would say life suggests I have a fairly analytical approach to problem solving. Somehow or other, I was born with that. It got, it got uh, nurtured over time. Uh, that's really important. 
I think I've been um, open in economics to different ways of thinking. So uh, I did a lot of work in comparative economics at one point. I sort of I had the general view of um, skepticism, like we don't know the answers and no model is right, but we could get better. I used to say that served me well in public policy because a lot of people feel like, here's the answer, and I'm going to do everything I can to get straight to the answer, because I believe in my answer, and frankly, I don't believe in any compromises, okay? That's not going to work. So my view is, okay, you kind of know where you want to go, and you may have to kind of go slowly with zigzags, as long as you're not going backwards, you're going forwards, but the willingness to kind of see room for compromise or uh, room for... um, Going slowly, uh, seeing a different perspective, I, I think I temperamentally have that. Um, and that's actually been really important in both economics and in public policy. Um, I mean, finally, I, I apparently have um, the ability to uh, take simple, complex things and make them simple. And, and actually, people said that when I would do an economics paper or lecture to when I would do a public policy session to when I would do a lecture for students. So I think that is a skill because if you're explaining complex concepts and complicated solutions to people who are not trained in your discipline, then you are trying to bring them along to see an outcome which you believe is a the best outcome. But, you know, we live in a democracy. We live in a situation where you don't impose your views. You convince people of your views. That that view is atypical, isn't it? Because uh, in the disciplines, it's really about talking to your colleagues. Uh, mm-hmm. Is that fair? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think I was very traditional in that respect. I, I really don't. I think that no, I'm, I... I'm, no, I, I've no, I'm noting <laughs> no. that. Yeah. No, no, no. I... I, I um, I would say in the first uh, decade of my professional life as an academic economist, I did the right things. I uh, wrote papers for my specialty. I went to conferences for my specialty. Um, I taught classes in my specialty, you know, very complicated Ph.D. classes. Um, I did that. It was interesting to me, but I really felt it was too uh, constraining, too restrictive. So it, gradually, it didn't happen overnight, uh, I started to say, no, the things that actually interest me from a point of view of the own, my own society in which I live and making things better are a different set of issues and a different set of people are having this conversation, not my academic colleagues, okay? So I would say there was a period of time, and again, I would say it's a kind of like a decade-long process, uh, when I, at Berkeley, found similarly inclined uh, colleagues. Berkeley is, has a wonderful tradition of allowing people to work across interdisciplinary, across disciplinary lines if they want, um, and that's really what I started to do. In fact, I started to co-teach a class with a political scientist, um, pretty pretty rare. I started to do a little more teaching in the business school and out of my economics discipline because business school curricula is more related to public policy or application problems. Um, so I, I, I gradually made this transition. And, and you're saying that communication skills 
and writing skills have been very important to you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Where did you learn to write? <laughs> <laughs> well, I well, don't uh, know. You know, I decided, again, in the early uh, 1980s, um, I date all of this pretty well because this was a period of time when I was teaching very large Econ 1 classes at Berkeley uh, when my son was born um, and when the Berkeley Roundtable was being formed. So all of these things were signs of real change in my own life. And what I wanted to do at the time, I thought, you know, I'm clearly... Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm involved in writing these commission reports. I'm involved in going to conferences. I really should try to write something of an opinion column sort to get my thoughts out to the public in a different way. And, and so I started to do that. I've done it over the decades since for the L.A. Times and Business Week and the New York Times and the Financial Times. And I'm currently doing something for a, a, group, uh, a, a blog site called Project Syndicate, which has economists and political scientists from all over the world. And they place them in newspapers all over the world. So uh, I would not say that writing is easy for me, however, Harry. I think it's actually hard for me. And um, I spend a lot of time on each of my columns, probably much I could not be a columnist. If I were a columnist and I had to write something every day, I'm not sure I could get out of the house any day. <laughs> so um, I think that I'm clear in my writing, and I think that I rely a lot on facts and analysis. My columns tend to be analytical and fact-based rather than just opinion. Um, I think it's important. I think it's important to do. I don't actually really enjoy doing them. <laughs> <laughs> A a confession. I've read many of them, and (laughs) you're doing a very good job of informing people and helping people who don't have an economics background uh, to understand. Uh, Talk a little about Washington. What surprised you most when you went to Washington? Well, first of all, a couple of things come to mind, I guess. First of all, when I first started to testify in Congress, um, which I had to do in my role as the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, What I thought was, well, I can go and use evidence and logic and my uh, skills as an economist to convince uh, this committee that what what we're doing in the Clinton administration is correct. And after after going many times and uh, realizing that that was not happening, uh, I did realize what people said to me, no, no, this is a kind of political theater. You go and make your statement. You have to do this. Everyone else makes their statement. There's very little real exchange of, um, of ideas. The exchange of ideas probably goes on behind the scenes with the staff. So there are very, very talented young people who staff the senators and House of Representatives, congressmen, and all of the committees. And I, they are doing real work, but the, but the hearings themselves, <laughs> the kind of where where you'd go, I would go into a lecture situation historically and feel like, oh, I can convince people, I can educate people, that I'm pr- imparting real information here. It's not a performance. I felt uh, that a lot of what I ended up doing on the Hill was a bit of performance art. So <laughs> that was new. That was a surprise. Um, I also figured out, and, and this was a little bit related to, to uh, the issue of, of gender. Um, when I first got to the White House, I had a very high-level position. But even in the White House, you have a high-level position. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be invited to the right meetings. It doesn't. So um, 
at a certain point, I, I started to feel like well, the Council of Economic Advisors should be in this meeting. So I need to go and make a request to be in the meeting. And that was very hard for me, but I did it. I represented my institution. We're economists. We must be at this meeting. And I was told at the time, that's fine, Laura. You, you don't realize how many men have come in here and asked for that. And, and they get it. And you, you took a while to do it, but you realized that you needed to do it. Okay? So that was like, whoa, that's a, that's a rule I didn't know. It's like an unwritten rule. Whoa. Right? So um, I got better at uh, saying, okay, who should be in the room? We should be in the room. And then making a point of being in the room. And, and I didn't get any pushback. But it's sort of like you have to do that. You, you have to take the first step. So a lot of the evidence about women in large organizations is women don't negotiate for positions. They don't go in and say, hey, I would be great for that job. Think of me. They're a little, they hold back a little bit and wait to be kind of discovered. That doesn't, that doesn't work in politics and doesn't work in organizations either. Looking back at your time in the Clinton administration, and we know about the events uh, the, that occurred after you all had been out of office for many years, the, talking about the economic crisis of 2008. Right. Uh, as you reflect back, do you, do you have any reflections or thoughts about what things that might have been uh, done differently? I think the first term, and I was only there for the first term, and, and it's important in terms of telling that story also to note on the aside, as I said in the Harvest Lecture, after four years in government, I certainly wanted to stay. But from the family's point of view, husband and son, they didn't want to stay, and the job was a family job. It wasn't an individual job. The whole family had the job. They had it in different forms, but they had the job. But and by that you mean that... that the job was taking so much of your so time. So much of my time that, that everything ended. else that had to do with the work of the family was secondary to me and imposed on them. And it was enough. It was, it was really enough. There were several men, including my good friend Bob Reich and his family, who left at the same time for the same reason. So I felt that um, the budget plan was the right thing to do. And uh, it would turned out to be very important from the point of view of, of being the first step to getting us on the road to a sustainable fiscal course. There was then a second step uh, in the beginning of the second term, but they were linked. They were absolutely linked. Um, I think that the North American Free Trade Agreement and then uh, the completion of the Uruguay round, I think, were very important. I know they're controversial among Democrats, but I think the evidence from the economic point of view is positive. Um, I regret, I think we all regret, that uh, we were not able to move uh, health care uh, forward. I think uh, we don't, the Clinton administration doesn't regret, and I was actually a skeptic, of the welfare reform. I, I literally was a skeptic. I have a note from the president saying, you know, thank you for your counsel. Uh, I understand your concerns, but this is what we're going to do. He was right. So I don't. Um, but health care probably was obviously the biggest uh, uh, sort of lost opportunity. The second term, however, I wasn't there. I think the biggest lost opportunity by far was uh, Social Security reform because as you began to see those surpluses building up, it was pretty clear that there were two things that might happen. They would either be a tax cut, which is what George W. Bush decided to do with that money, 
or there would be a social security reform that would essentially use that money uh, for social security. And uh, the uh, the second term Clinton administration was not it was not possible in a way to move in that direction because of all of the other things going on around uh, the presidency at that time. And I think from an economic point of view, that's a tremendous loss. In the second term, did the administration go too far in terms of deregulation? Um, it, it's possible that at the, it was towards the very end. Um, I think that it was a moment in time when the economy was doing so well, productivity was so high, there was a kind of love of technology. Technology was transforming the retail sector, the wholesale sector, but also the financial sector. The financial sector's ability to develop uh, intricate new products, financial engineering, risk management, and that was all just exploding. Frankly, no one really completely understood it. I remember I had Alan Greenspan come to the Haas School when I first became dean in 1998. And he actually said to me, it's like having a really fancy new car. You open up the hood and you don't know what's going on. That's Alan Greenspan. Okay. So that was the situation. And there was a kind of sense among, in my profession, among financial uh, experts that, you know, the system is going to manage. One of the things it can do in a way we don't quite understand is manage risk better but of course, my view, even at the time, I wrote a piece about this in Business Week. I said, why, do you, why does one think that? Maybe it just moves the risk around in ways that we can't see and actually makes the risk bigger. Because if everybody thinks the risk is smaller, they're going to take riskier actions. It's almost like it's self-fulfilling. If I believe the system is less risky, hey, I could personally be pretty risky. Mm. So there was, uh, I don't, the administration was certainly not alone in its view, that the financial markets were becoming so sophisticated that they w- could regulate themselves in ways which we didn't quite understand. That turned out to be wrong. It's interesting because you were influential having been in the administration. You wrote a piece. Why uh, were the majority of powerful people in Washington not listening to you, which is not to say you were the only one saying that. Is it just the herd instinct? Yeah, I think that that was not the common, the conventional wisdom, the the herd instinct, the the dominant paradigm at the time, um, as reflected in having uh, Bob Rubin, uh, Larry Summers, and Alan Greenspan on the cover, I guess it was of Time, Mm -hmm. Masters of the Universe. Mm -hmm. The, the, The dominant view of the time is, boy, uh, financial markets have become more stable. We're more sophisticated. There's more um, ways for uh, the system to manage risk. Therefore, we don't need to do as much regulation. There was another point of view at the same time out there, which is uh, U.S. financial institutions are competing globally. They need to compete globally. We don't want to restrict them in ways which disadvantage them in this global competition. So there was another thing going on. Um, so occasionally voices would be raised of concern, but it really was not the, the, the dominant view at the time, I'm afraid. Now you are an observer. You learn from your mistakes. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> I uh, think a lot has been learned. I, I recently did a, a, a book, the last interview with Timothy Geithner on his book tour, 
And I just said to the audience, there's this book, it, there is so much in this book, which really reflects what has been done, which is very significant, and of course also indicates some of the things that still need to be done. For example, we have not in any way in the United States dealt with the housing market. We, we, we have, you know, most of the mortgages are coming through Fannie and Freddie, government institutions. We, we don't have that part of the financial market worked out. We've put it on hold. We've put it on hold while we sort of did some other things. Uh, you're an observer now here at Haas. Uh, and uh, I want to ask you, comparing the Clinton presidency uh, and the Obama presidency, uh, what do you see? How has the environment changed? Has it changed drastically, or is it just more of the same old stuff in extreme form? Well, I, I think you have to ask that question um, in two ways. One is uh, internally, and one is with the rest of the world. So internally, um, I think you could say these are extreme versions of tendencies that were already obvious uh, in the Clinton administration. So if we go back to the budget plan in the first term. There were no Republicans who supported that. And indeed, they said from the very beginning, in January of the first year of President Clinton's first term, they said, we will not support your program. I mean, so it wasn't like there was any possibility to compromise. We will not support your program. You're going to have to get enough Democrats to get this through. We're not going to do it. Um, that was very similar to what Obama heard in the beginning of his first term. It was much worse for him because he had a huge financial crisis and economic crisis, threatening crisis, right there happening in real time. It turns out in the Clinton administration, things were starting to get better. They had started to get better. So the magnitude of the problem was less severe. Um, but the, also the, 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 the nasty... Uh, partisan unwillingness to compromise, unwillingness to come up with a bipartisan plan, which you'd seen in the first term of the Clinton administration, you certainly saw in the Obama administration. By the way, the second term of the Clinton administration was better because uh, that budget deal in the beginning of the second term did get bipartisan support. So after government shutdowns, remember the first government mm. shutdown was under the, Clinton, the first term of the Clinton administration. I was there. Um, that that uh, technique, that tactic of getting one's way was, was not used again until the Obama administration. And, um, and there's even a threat, apparently, that it'll be used again at the end of this year. So unwillingness to compromise um, is something we has gotten worse because the 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 first the wing the the far right has gained a very significant hold over the members of Congress in the Republican Party, making it extremely difficult for uh, Boehner uh, and McConnell to really move their party to any compromise position. They can barely get their party to agree on their own position, much less a compromise position, um, and that just means that. There's not the ability. Who, who's, who's your partner in trying to work out a compromise? Who's your partner? Um, on the external side, I will just say that the U.S., uh, we have, uh, uh, when Obama took office, the U.S. was uh, extremely unpopular in the world. Um, the unilateral uh, sort of coalition of the willing approach had completely broken down. Uh, and I think the need to 
uh, follow uh, what has been traditional, I think, a, a democratic instinct, which is to kind of use multilateral institutions and and um, uh, agreements uh, um, with allies that are worked out at the beginning to get something done, that that's uh, a, a different approach to foreign policy, a different approach to foreign policy. In the, in the context of these changes in the political system, uh, as a, someone who's on the progressive side, mm -hmm. what, what do you then see as the role of government? Uh, what is possible in such an environment? So a couple of things are interesting here. Um, I think uh, you saw some of this in the last election. Although the country uh, significantly swung to the right or appeared to in uh, who they elected, if you actually looked at what people thought about things like the minimum wage or Social Security or early childhood education or equity in educational opportunities, most people support those things, actually are ardent supporters of those things, okay? So the kind of progressive values as reflected in things people care about are still, are still very present among American voters. So, but the people that are being elected uh, in the Congress are, are not as reflective. Now, that's partly to do with gerrymandering and, and the way elections are run in the United States, the role of money and the role of gerrymandering. So the people who are elected don't necessarily reflect these views at all. Okay, they, they are, It's something else going on. Um, and then I would say another thing that is true is that at state and local government levels, some really interesting things are going on in some rather red states. So Utah is uh, doing some really interesting things in early childhood education. Tennessee is doing amazing things in community college. K Kentucky is doing amazing things in health care, using working with Obamacare to achieve dramatic improvements in health care. So let's say for a while... For reasons of money and politics and gerrymandering and who wants to run for office at the level of Congress in the United States, Congress is the, I would say, the broken organization of government. And I would say that we're seeing uh, a lot of signs uh, at the state and local levels that not all states, I mean, clearly this, there are some states that are absolutely walking away from, from uh, the kinds of social policy we're talking about. But lots of states, including ones you wouldn't predict, are embracing it. And why are they doing that? Because that's what their populations want. So um, what happens at the federal level? You know, I guess a disappointment to me was, uh, if you think about the rise of the Tea Party, the rise of the Tea Party was uh, a bunch of disgruntled voters who got together and formed a political organization and then influenced electoral outcomes. What did the 99% the do? They didn't do any of that. They protested, they protested, they wrote some things, and they dissipated. No effort to run candidates, to influence elections, to come up with a policy. Sooner or later, the only way to change Washington is to change who goes there. It's the only way to do it. And you have to be politically mobilized to do that. In one of your columns, you argued about uh, the possibilities to, of perceiving government as, as almost like a venture capitalist. Yes, And yes. that follows from what you just yes, said. Yes. Talk, talk a little about that. So one of the, uh, uh, one of the unremarked um, 
innovations, I would say, in the Obama administration, and I think this will just grow over time, is to set up an office of, of basically, it was, it was called something like civic engagement and social innovation. And it was actually sat, it uh, was headed by someone who actually uh, was at UCLA for a while. He was, he was originally a co- competitor in the global social venture competition at, at Berkeley. He's a Connected to California. Anyway, he worked very hard within the administration to, to, on things that are social innovation funds, funds that can be used by the federal government, small amounts of funds, to promote um, uh, new policy approaches at the state or local level. Um, who, and um, the other thing the administration has done a lot of is uh, to try to judge, to improve the efficiency of policy by having things like um, competitions for policy suggestions, so policy ideas, and then you sort of look at the, at the results and you kind of improve things. They've brought in a lot of private sector groups to help improve things. For example, a very good example of this, by the way, was when the healthcare, um, the rollout of the system encountered all of these um, flaws in design. Um, basically, there were a lot of people from the tech community who just went in and helped, okay? They just said, okay, we're going to help out. Um, you know, things like Code for America. Uh, there are important new organizations that oftentimes can work with the public sector that can be supported by the public sector through a grant or through a research project to improve the way things are done. And then... Ideally, and this is where we're just seeing things happen, uh, an innovation in, say, how you deliver uh, health care uh, can actually start at a local level, then be copied by a lot of different communities, and then scale up to the state level. At every level, there is federal money coming in, because federal money is a very important part of health care. But the federal money is being allocated in such a way to allow for these experimental innovative approaches. Let's talk about uh, two problems that are of a concern to every progressive, and, and the first is uh, inequality, which has really become a major topic, and then secondarily, which is an aspect of that, the, the plight of women uh, and, and their unequal uh, situation. Talk first about uh, inequality. I mean, what does the data show? Uh, you've done a very good job of explaining that in, in some of your mm-hmm. blog posts. Well, so I think the most important place to start this discussion is to note that the increase in income and wealth inequality is not unique to the United States. It has it started about the same time, which is probably in the late 1970s uh, and continue today um, in all of the developed, or I won't say all, but most of the developed market economies. Okay? In fact, I think it was all of them. Um, so the first thing you say is it's not unique to the United States. You can say that in the U.S., uh, the two things are different. One is that the top 1% has a larger share, and that share has growing most rapidly over time compared to the other countries. So if you measure inequality that way, the U.S. clearly has the most extreme inequality because of the 
share of national income or share of wealth that goes to the top 1%. Okay. But if you measure inequality by things like the Gini coefficient, which are meant to measure uh, the, over, it's the overall measure of inequality that's most commonly used, uh, the U.S. actually looks not as bad as uh, countries like Germany and the U.K. and Sweden. But that's before the government does anything to make it better. So the GD coefficient might be before the government does any tax policy and any transfer policy to help the disadvantaged or the middle income, what does income inequality look like? Looks like it's getting worse every place. The U.S. doesn't look like it's at the top mm. or the worst, okay? Where the U.S. looks worse is after the tax and transfer policy. The other countries are doing a lot more to bring the inequality in, to reduce the inequality. You can do that by uh, child care policies, education policies, health policies, income transfer policies. There are a whole way by tax policy. You can do it by, you know, the, a more progressive tax code. Actually, most countries don't do do it by the tax code so much as by the transfer system, because most of these other countries have value-added taxes, which are by themselves tend to be regressive. So uh, the U.S. does a lot less, uh, and that is a reflection of our policy choices. Um, one might say, well, all right, if all the countries have encountered this problem at around the same time, uh, what's driving the problem? And I am a structuralist here in the sense of thinking it's primarily uh, technology, which is taking out a lot of middle-income job opportunities and pushing the opportunities to the extremes, either low-income job opportunities or very high income. You work with the technology. The technology doesn't the technology doesn't substitute for you. You work with it. It's your robot. It's your technology, okay? And the technology in the middle is taking out jobs, and that leaves you with people who are doing things that require face-to-face -face engagement, but they can be... Uh, they can be rather low-income jobs. Uh, health care orderlies might be an example of that. Very, very, very important uh, child care uh, givers. Very, 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 very important. They don't earn much in the way of income or benefits. Um, so I, that's, uh, that's how I tend to see it. Um, there are others who really focus more on, you know, U.S., the role of money in politics. My colleague Bob Reich would do that and say, or the erosion. Look, I, I certainly think the erosion of, of unions in the United States has been a, a, a big contributor to, to it. Instead of holding against or pushing back against these structural forces, the ability of unions to push that way has just collapsed. I mean, 6 percent of the private sector workforce is unionized, only 6 percent. Who, who represents the worker here? In, in, in one of your columns, you make the point which I would like for you to go over here, and that is that traditionally productivity, uh, the rise in productivity yes. was tied to the rise in income. In income. And, and since the 70s, yeah. that has ceased. Yeah. Uh, uh, and it's, then all these factors that you've talked about play into that. Yeah, so it's one of the big surprises, that, I, and I think that... Uh, Anybody, any economist who thinks about income inequality sort of starts with that because you, economic logic says that uh, in general labor markets are supposed to reward people according to their productivity. So if productivity is growing rapidly, you would expect that 
wages or compensation, some measure of the productivity of the workforce uh, would also be growing uh, with that productivity growth. And really starting around 1980, that gap between the rate of growth of productivity and the rate of growth of worker compensation started to open up. It's a very large gap now. As far as we know, it's the largest gap that exists like that in the developed countries, uh, suggesting that there are some things about, say, things like labor markets and uh, unions, minimum wages. So again, I want to say that in these other countries that do a lot to compress income inequality, it's not just their policies, but they do, well, minimum wage is a policy. They have much more generous minimum wage policies. So the minimum wage is often tied to the median wage. If you put a serious floor on the minimum wage, you're going to hold up the entire wage distribution to some extent. We do. We let the minimum wage just fall apart in terms of real purchasing power. Um, and then unions have a much bigger role, oftentimes at the level of centralized or nationwide uh, wage agreements, which are very, very important, and we don't have those. So, so that gap might be largely explained by, or significantly explained by, the lack of institutions to represent labor in what share of those productivity gains should go to workers. So if this is a problem of political economy, mm-hmm. it's the political that becomes very important? Yes. Yes, it, it is. I, look, I would say that that gap, part of that is also economic. So what you have going on here is that because of the technology, a larger share of what looks like wage income ends up going to a very small percentage of people, many of whom are not exactly workers because a lot of top management uh, is being paid in the basis of shares and restricted stock. And if you believe that those shares and restricted stock over time reflect the growing productivity and the growing revenues that come from productivity, it's being shared in a very unequal way. Um, so I want, I want to say there are both economic factors behind the gap but certainly we, the politics or policy is all about how we handle that gap. What do we do about it if that's the world that we live in, if that's what the globalization and technological change are doing to middle-income families and to lower-income families? What do we do about it? Society ha- And we're not doing uh, nearly as much as what some of our other developed countries are doing. And we don't seem to be moving in the direction of doing more. Indeed, the, the, the right wing of the Republican Party, and I would say even the Republican Party, the, the median on the Hill, really doesn't think we should do as much as we're doing. So, <laughs> uh, Your journey as a policy uh, person and as an economist uh, made you sensitive to issues of gender. Mm-hmm. And then when you became dean at the London School of Business, right. you were sensitized to uh, what was happening to, to women graduates. Uh, let's talk about that, because you've been involved in shaping what the World Economic Forum calls a gender parity index. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk a little about that and, and what you're seeing that's that's okay. disturbing. Okay. Yeah. So I think my um, increasing engagement in thinking about gender came, started to come really when I came back to uh, to Berkeley, not because of what was going on at Berkeley, by the way, but because I became the dean of a business school. And then you become a dean of a business school and you 
Um, because I've been a, I want to say one thing, I'm a progressive, very progressive Democrat, I would say, but I've also really felt that I, because of my role on boards and because of the kind of academic work I did on U.S. competitiveness, that I really understand the importance of business and I want policymakers to work well with business and I want really great educated leaders to go into business. So I was very attracted to be a dean of a business school. I thought that was uh, really a nice way to combine my policy interests with my pro-business, pro-worker, how we're going to get this public-private partnership for economics. Um, what I discovered uh, early on was that there were, weren't many female professors and there weren't many students, that the students, you know, whereas in medical school and law school and a lot of, and public health, and uh, you had women enrolling at about gender parity 50-50, in business schools way under 20, you were lucky if you got to 20, um, women weren't applying uh, in large numbers. Uh, there, then there was some evidence that they were applying, but they weren't staying in the business world once they got the degree. So I just got interested. And then um, I started to, not so much here, because here I was doing more new economy stuff and technology and just starting to think about gender. But when I got to London, um, what I, I was asked initially to do a report on uh, diversity in corporate governance. Not to do the report, but to chair a commission because it was a political hot potato and since I was not a British citizen, I could chair this thing totally objectively. That was the view. And I was on the, I was on the boards of several companies at that point, so I said, okay, I'll do that. And I was struck by, uh, you know, what we, what we discovered in that process of sort of the pipeline issue that I talked about in the lecture, the fact that you have um, businesses by the early 2000s were really trying hard to have gender parity in their intake in the number of new employees, but then it would all disappear and you'd still see at the top levels very few women, very few women on boards, very few men, women in top management, women disappearing in middle management in large numbers. So what was going on? Why, why is this happening? Okay. And why is this happening for women who are going to business school and getting these degrees? And then, and so that's how I became interested. And then um, the World Economic Forum approached me and said, would I be interested in working on this new idea they had to have one of their indices? They do a lot of indices on global competitiveness, but they wanted to do an index measuring uh, gender parity. So over the, uh, the time, they developed a series of measures. You can measure gender parity on education, on health, on politics, <clears throat> and on economic opportunity and advancement. Um, we put together uh, the, the data. There's always been a really strong team on this within the World Economic Forum. Um, and someone who's been working on it consistently the whole time, who I have a very close relationship with. Um, and uh, they, we put together a report, and it's uh, basically come to be widely cited and uh, used by governments, used by um, businesses to think about um, different. How, why are countries doing differently? What could countries do better? What could businesses do better to actually add to more economic opportunity advancement to, to improve gender parity on all these measures? And, and the bottom line is that women 
are there is progress. There is progress, but but, yeah. but in the final analysis, it's not as much as happening <laughs> as should be happening. It's very slow. So so, so look, the truth is. On the edu- first of all, I want to say that we we don't have perfect measures. We we in order to have a large number of countries be covered, we had to choose data that is available for all countries. Um, so, with that being said, um, what you find is that on education or on health, um, even if you're a poor society. Most societies uh, deliver about the same degree of uh, educational um, attainment by gender. Not all societies. Clearly, we can think of some that don't. But that the educational parity, whether you measure it in literacy or primary school or secondary school, and now even tertiary school, um, that on education, parity is... Significant, we're approaching parity, the gender gap has been dramatically reduced. Okay, that stands in great contrast to the um, disparities in what we call economic opportunity and advancement. And those would be measured by things like the percentage of the working age female population that is working, um, their wage opportunities, their advancement opportunities, their percentage of high level jobs. Those, on all of those indicators, even most developed societies, even the best performers in the world, haven't reduced the gender parity gap. Now, they're quite low in the, the Nordic countries, which are always top the list here. Um, so maybe they've eliminated 85% of the gender gap in economics. Um, and then the final gap, and this is the hardest one to measure, which is why I talked about um, the problems of the data, is political representation. Because women around the world if uh, tend to be, if they're involved in politics, more likely to be at the local level, at the community level, at the town level, at the city level, at the state level, than they are to be at the federal or national level. And so we don't have good indicators of that. So if you look at the national level, things like ministerial positions or presidential positions or very high-level positions, all countries, the biggest gap is the gender gap in politics by far. Um, the progress. We, we recently, in the last report, we looked at the progress on economic opportunity and advancement. That's the one we looked at. And we said... If the world continues to make progress at the current pace, it will take 81 years to close that gap. So that's too long, and I think that societies have to uh, work very hard and organizations have to work very hard to make more progress. Uh, I'm going to recommend to our audience that they watch your lecture, which is on UCTV where this interview appears. Uh, and there are two very interesting tables at the end about how we can make change. And you point out that this has to be done at the individual level, the right. cultural level, the level of the company, and uh, the level, the of, level of policy. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, but I want to focus on uh, two. Uh, another table also which compares the strengths of women mm-hmm. versus the strengths of men and, and the stereotypes that go with them. And so I want to ask you, I want to put all that together. People are going to go watch the lecture and <laughs> okay. see the tables. But it seems that two problems that that are really uh, quite, that stand out. One is the problem of having children 
rearing children, all of that is involved in the woman's concern about the family yes. on the one mm-hmm. hand, mm-hmm. which suggests all sorts of policies. Right. And then the other is the extent to which women are different mm-hmm. than men yes. in a positive way in the sense that they have different values uh, and so on. And in both cases, at the company level and at the policy level, this is not taken into account. Mm-hmm. The differences adjust- are not. Adjustments are not made. Is that a fair kind of superficial summary of what you're saying there? Yeah, no, I, I actually, I hadn't put it quite together that way, but I think that I, I would agree with everything you said. So on the issue of uh, families and uh, child care, I think societies can do much more. I hear, I think, you know, as I said, on gender parity measures, the Nordic countries always top the list. What is, there's lots of things common to them, but one of the key commonalities, which other countries around the world now are trying to learn from, I know Japan is deeply involved in studying the ways in which Norway, Sweden, Iceland, Finland support families. Those are uh, parental leave policies, child care policies, early education policies, doing everything society can do to support the family, not not the woman as opposed to the spouse or the not it doesn't the family is the thing to support. Okay, the family and uh, and the children in the family, and I think we can do much more. Um, you know, the, I also uh, did say in that lecture just last December. There was an article, they did a survey of Harvard Business School men and women across generations, from my generation down to the millennials, and they asked questions about expectations of men and women about who would play the major role of child care in their family. And both men and women thought women would. Still, this is now. You know, this is right now. Okay? So there's no way, it's not realistic this is where I'm an economist, okay? It's not realistic to say you can simply have it all and do it all. Well, you can have it all and do it all if you have, like, a whole bunch of help, okay? But we can't assume that the average woman is going to be able to afford a whole bunch of help, okay? That's just not it. So society is the source of the help. Society should want to promote help families so that the talent of men and women can be fully engaged to... Uh, improve the economy, improve society, improve education. So that that's my view on that, and I think it is very, very important. It's the first thing countries can and should do if if their goal is to move towards greater gender parity. Um, then on the issue of uh, business organizations and gender differences, so there is that I did put up in the lecture this one-pager which summarizes uh, the work of, say, the last decade by uh, a lot of economists, social psychologists, uh, sociologists around the world uh, looking at uh, differences in in behavior by gender. Um, So looking at things like differences in negotiating style, in styles of competition, in styles of working with teams, uh, in styles of leadership. Um, the, what the results show are things which I think many women, and probably many men too, anecdotally think, yeah, that's how, that's how it is. <laughs> but 
documenting them is really, really important. Because, let me just give you an example, and it was highlighted by what happened last fall when the new CEO of Microsoft said, uh, when asked in a, in a setting that was a conference about women, he was asked, well, should women negotiate for uh, wage increases and promotions? He said, well, I, he said, I think that women have s- some karma by not asking. <laughs> and then their talent will be discovered and they will be promoted and they will get wage increases. Well, if he had seen this research, he would have known that was just not the case, that women, that women don't tend to negotiate for promotions nearly as much as men. They're not as confident as men. They're not, even when they're as confident, they're not as likely to go out and say, hey, I'm really good. Do something about this. So you, you, the whole human resources of an organization has to be designed around these differences if what you want to do is achieve gender parity in outcomes. You have to accept the differences in behavior and say, well, then how do we reorganize our human resources processes to take account of these differences? By the way, he subsequently said he was wrong. And I said, I just hope this human resources person knows this literature, because that's really what we have to do. Organizations have to know about these differences. And if they're committed to developing the pipeline they are going to have to make adjustments. And companies are, uh, many companies are beginning to do just that. Well, on that note, Laura, I want to thank you for taking the time to be on our program. And uh, I want to, again, recommend to our audience that they watch your lecture as a companion to this interview. And I think the two together will uh, give uh, an impressive sense of, of the ideas that that you've carried uh, throughout your life. Thank you. Thank you very much, Harry. And thank you very much for joining us for this conversation with history. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.